0: Welcome to the Infinite Women Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Tyra, and today I'm joined by novelist Sherilyn Dector, author of The Bootlegger Chronicles, Rum Runner Chronicles, and Moonshiner Mysteries. Now, if you can't tell by the titles, her particular area of interest is Prohibition and the Women Who Defied It in Spectacular Fashion. Um, so first, let's dispel the myth that all women in the U.S. in the 1910s and 1920s were pro temperance.
1: While well, the temperance movement did claim to speak for all women, uh, they didn't. And many people equated suffragists with the temperance uh, union, which was actually true um, because it was one of the first sort of social activist uh, uh, organizations that was established after women got the vote in America in 1919. That, um, and, and temperance was very popular initially in theory. Uh, until people got a a sense of sort of what was involved and the impact it was going to have in their daily life. And then, of course, uh, uh, a lot of people changed their minds about how they wanted to approach it.
0: Part of the reason that it was presented as a women's issue was that the reasons that they were pushing for temperance, like you said, like theoretically, it sounded good because They were thinking that this would reduce domestic violence. Um, It would keep husbands from spending all their money at the bars. Um, But obviously the actual practical outcomes of prohibition were very counterproductive in that
1: regard. Oh, very much so Um, for a couple of reasons. One is that you can't uh, limit supply without uh, limiting demand, right? uh, So you've got this unequal balance. And so it just, um, uh it was doomed to fail right from the beginning um but the other thing of course is they made it illegal and dangerous so uh, there there's you know there's a little bit of the the bad girl bad boy in all of us right and if we can thumb our noses at the law um uh it just makes it more attractive the other thing that happened of course was when they they uh restricted the legal uh, Production of alcohol; it became illegal, which led to, you know, no standards. Uh, bathtub gin, which a lot of people have heard about, but there were, uh, you know, a lot of dangerous chemicals used in the production of illegal alcohol. And in fact, the government itself sort of got into the act when they were trying later on during Prohibition in the United States. They actually started poisoning uh, alcohol trying to increase the danger and the risk. And so people never knew what they were going to be getting. Um, And so, again, what you wanted to do was to have a a very reliable bootlegger and your local speakeasy so that you at least had some comfort that you weren't going to go blind or die by by drinking this illegal alcohol.
0: Wow. I I didn't know that they actually deliberately were trying to poison people. That is
1: impressively awful Oh, <laughs> well, government works in mysterious ways allison <laughs>
0: <laughs> now having taken u.s history classes um when i was a kid um it was very much presented as women were the cause of temperance um so you've got like Carrie nation with um i believe it was an axe just running around smashing up bars Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but they didn't teach us that women were also key in the repeal of prohibition. They sort of glossed over that part.
1: Yeah. When when women realized that there were risks involved to this, that it wasn't uh, going to work out the way they had initially thought, that people were going to be drinking a lot more, um, that it was dangerous to be drinking for the reasons we talked about, you know, it was dangerous for your health uh, beyond the usual, um, that uh, they decided that they were going to have to change their minds. And so had a good push to try and get the government to repeal prohibition. And women were at the forefront of that as well. And so, again, it was quite um, interesting to see the, the social activism that uh, this cause generated because of course during the whole fight for the vote they learned great organizational skills and uh, they had uh, well established networks and so it's just a matter now of picking a side. I find Pauline
0: Sabin particularly interesting because she had been a temperance advocate but then once she saw the practical reality she founded the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform in 1929 and by 1931 she had a- 1.5 million members nationwide and this is obviously well before the internet like this is all you know male (laughs) basically um and so she's organizing this national effort um, but she was an experienced political operator and she knew how to effectively activate that group and they were a big part of how it got repealed um and it's also interesting that like it's fascinating to me, the psychology of people and the fact that she, in both instances, she said that she wanted to protect her sons and she thought that prohibition was a way to do that. But once she saw what was actually happening, she realized repeal was the best way to do that. But this whole framework of women aren't supposed to fight for ourselves, but we're allowed to fight for others. And so that was the way that she really galvanized the movement and was accepted for being an activist, was saying that she was doing it as a mother.
1: It comes back to the the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Um, And uh, um, we're fortunate enough to live in a time where we don't have to sort of, Uh, hide behind that. Although again, protecting families is always a strong motivator and has been uh, sort of that driving force between a lot of uh, uh, social justice issues uh, in many countries uh, throughout time.
0: For you in particular, you're really fascinated by the entrepreneurial women of the 1920s who saw prohibition as an opportunity. So can you tell us a bit about that perspective?
1: Yes, you can. You can imagine. I mean, you look at the timing that all this was happening. It was just after World War One, the Great War, which had a cataclysmic impact on society, um, uh, not just in terms of uh, um, breaking down social mores, but but a lot of the men didn't come back the ones that did were were fragile or damaged either physically or mentally which left a lot of women having to cope on their own and so you know if you can imagine you're sitting there and you've got your your children around you and they're crying because they're hungry and there's no other breadwinner and so the first question is what would you do you know you personally allison how would you deal with that you would try and find work and so the next question becomes what could you do and for a lot of women they had a history already of home-based brewing i mean women were making the beer that they consumed uh, around the, the kitchen table uh for generating uh, a lot of the products they already had access to you know in their gardens or in the fields and uh so that piece of the puzzle was a skill they had. They could take in laundry um, or they could set up a still. Um, and a lot of them chose just to do that. And in fact, some of them went uh, quite a bit bigger than that, um, which is, you know, the fascination I have because there were some incredibly um, dynamic, uh, driven women who succeeded during Prohibition, um, although one of them was asked about what made her so successful, and she just looked at the uh, reporter who asked her and said, hunger. Uh, hunger made her, her her that motivated to succeed. So, So there was that piece of it, the war. The second piece, though, was at the beginning of the 20s after the war was intense change faster than uh, we've ever, ever seen before, or frankly, since maybe except because of the pandemic, that um, there were mothers who had spent their entire life corseted, coddled, in long skirts, with no aspirations beyond home and hearth, and their daughters had tossed corsets into the closet, were, were driving, smoking and drinking in public. Uh, they were going out unchaperoned on dates. They were getting an education. They were, they were buying property uh, that, you know, they were having passports in their own name. I mean, for, so from, you know, social mores to, to legal issues, to political issues, as they be cast votes, uh, to, to uh, just economic drivers. So, so, and all this happened, if you can imagine in this, in one decade. And so you had huge generational change. And in fact, I mean, you only have to look at family photographs from the period and you see the the mothers and grandmothers still bustled and corseted and you see their flapper uh, daughters Um, who were in, you know, knee-length dresses or, heaven forbid, pants. So, again, um, that also impacted it because one of the things about being an entrepreneur during Prohibition was you had to be very comfortable with crime. And so, for many people, it started off by drinking in a speakeasy and drinking illegal liquor. And then at some point, there's always a light bulb moment where you say, I could do that. Um, In fact, I could do that very well. And many of them did. Speaking to the
0: sort of zeitgeist of the time as well, I think you saw in both world wars that while the men were away, women were called upon to take up those jobs that they had not previously been allowed to do. But then when the men came home, they were expected to just go back to being wives and mothers, and suddenly it's a lot harder to revert back to that and to accept less when you now know for a fact that you can do more.
1: There, there's a, a lot of uh, power in having your own money and being able to spend, make those about how you want to spend that money. Um, That uh, there's also self-actualization about being the decision maker, about being seen as as a person of value. Um, And so you're absolutely right to go back back into the kitchen, back behind the closed front doors of people's homes, Uh, Women didn't want to do that. And uh, again, uh, so that there was this economic imperative that drove them out uh, to make entrepreneurial decisions. But frankly, there were a lot of women who really enjoyed it as well. And uh, um, again, I think, you know, the ramifications were that, you know, while they were working in those factories and, and doing those jobs for the men during the war, they also learned good organizational skills. And while they may have had a sort of um, uh, egg money to learn their budgeting skills, suddenly they were running um, uh, or, or in charge of the, the books for businesses. Um, and, and so that it, it threw opened the doors to a lot of opportunities that hadn't been open to them before. I also love that you mentioned
0: that, you know, women have been making alcohol for centuries. And I was recently reading a book called Girly Drinks by Mallory O'Meara, who really ties this correlation between attitude towards women making and consuming alcohol and attitudes towards women's rights in general, illustrating different factors for why men have tried to push women out of those industries from wanting to remove competition so they could corner the market for themselves, um, but also the overlap between brewers in Europe and witch hunts. So you actually had the, the church correlating um, like a lot of the classical images that we have of a witch from the hat to the cauldron to the cat. That was actually just what a brewer looked like and so they're literally saying these women are in league with the devil <laughs> and so it's really just fascinating that connection between women's financial independence and um, men who want to control women obviously trying to control or trying to remove that access to freedom um but The other factor is that drinking alcohol represents a form of freedom that women take over their own bodies. Um, That, again, I think in this particular period, that was something that they were really wanting to assert their own control and take their freedom.
1: I think that men's fear of strong, independent women is, is well-documented and, uh, and has been for generations. The tough parts of my books was never finding um, women who were entrepreneurial, who were you know, bootlegging and, and uh, moonshining and, and the running speakeasies. It was to try and find the men who were allied with them who were comfortable with that strength and power and autonomy and independence. Uh, And frankly, a a lot of the fictionalized characters who are men in my book, there are very, very few um, uh, men who actually played that role in real life Um, that uh, they were always trying to, uh, again, uh, push them, back into the kitchen they they you know whether it was for competitive reasons or just they felt personally threatened uh they didn't understand uh you know sort of that that uh uh, entrepreneurial approach that and how it's different uh sometimes with women um a lot a lot of things were going on there for sure
0: was there a particular archetype was there a specific kind of woman who was involved in the alcohol trade during prohibition, or was it just all sorts?
1: Uh, All sorts. And I think that, uh, I mean, their, their personalities, uh, every single one of them had in common that they wanted that uh, they wanted that entrepreneurial success um, their personalities dictated how they would approach it so that those larger than life characters tended to be running the front of the house. And so those were the broads and the dames that were running the speakeasies and the, and the private clubs. They were very much like the actress Mae West greeting, you know, the, the, the men at the door, you know, hello sucker being, extravagant large personalities. Um, and so that they became part of the entertainment, the, the brand, the notoriety of, of their clubs. Um, to uh, very traditional women, women like our own mothers and grandmothers who wanted uh, something on a smaller scale and so they were the ones who were running the beer flats and and basically turning their living rooms front rooms into little tiny speakeasies they had Small production, maybe in the basement. Um, you know, on a Friday night, they throw open the doors, and and they became the, the neighborhood bar, the neighborhood pub, and and uh, their neighbors would come in for a, a pint or a glass of, of whatever they were serving that night. So that they were more comfortable. The you know the kids would be in the kitchen, uh, the neighbors would be in the front room, and they were managing it. Um, and then there were the women who didn't want that kind of profile and those were the moonshiners and they were in the backwoods uh in appalachia in the mountains uh um uh in rural areas and and they were actually in front of the stills uh brewing it although what fascinated me is that they were also the most physical of all of the women i mean the the uh the, the ones who were running the speakeasies were paying off the cops and the politicians and had the clientele where they knew that if they were busted by uh, the cops, they weren't going to be spending too long in jail. Uh, whereas, um, and, and the, the women at home, there was such a natural reluctance uh, to uh, arrest large women, especially mothers, um, uh, during that time period. And so they tended to get away with it as well. But those moonshining women, they they were dealing with, uh, you know, a backwoods uh, mentality where where you know they had you know sort of a gun in one hand and you know their hand at the still on the other as they were were, were making this moonshine and you know fighting off bears and fighting off bad guys and. And, uh, and rival moonshiners. And so, so they had a whole different kind of personality and uh, they, they didn't often work together. Like they didn't often meet, uh, you know, the, the speakeasy people were, were urban sophisticates and the moonshiners were rural, you know, backwoods uh, creatures. So, so it was interesting times and, uh, but there was a spot for everyone there was a saying uh, in one of the newspaper headlines it it came across it says every night was ladies night during prohibition and so there was room for every kind of woman to realize that dream of financial security and independence and uh, uh, again unfortunately when prohibition ended uh, a lot of them didn't have an opportunity to continue to uh, realize that dream
0: so we've talked about the Moonshiners, but what about the Rum Runners? Oh,
1: yes. Yeah, that uh, all along the, uh, primarily the eastern coast of the United States. um, Prohibition uh, was uh, an American law, uh, the Volstead Act. And um, so, but it was still legal in Canada, England, you know, and so that they were surrounded by legal alcohol, which then meant that, you know, there were a lot of people who were wanting to import legal alcohol in, especially as the the quality and the the safety of the homemade stuff deteriorated over the course of the 13 years of prohibition. Um, So that along the East Coast, the, the rum runners were the people on the water and that uh, uh, they would be importing it from England, Scotland, Europe, Canada, uh, holding it in uh, uh, large two-masted uh, uh, vessels. Uh, people would come from the shore in small dinghies and boats that got faster and faster. And there was this giant competition between you know, the Coast Guard and, and the rum runners to who would have the biggest injuries. And at one point they were actually using airplane engines strapped to these tiny wooden boats as they were trying to outrun each other. Uh, you'd go out, you'd buy your, your stuff and uh, your alcohol, and then you would bring it back to shore and sell it. Um, so that there was this whole sort of uh, system of, of signaling about, you know, what flags the ships were flying would tell them what, you know, what products they had on board. Um, that there were all kinds of pirates who were waiting between the pickup where they had the liquor and when the rum runner would get back to shore to basically steal it from them. Um, And so, you know, it was also uh, very exciting times. And there were women who thrived in that environment as well.
0: That really makes me wonder how much money the government must have spent trying to enforce a fundamentally unenforceable
1: law i know it's, it's madness because the other thing is that they didn't have uh taxes from liquor the lots of movies from the the 20s about the untouchables and el capone and they are talking about how um uh they're you know trying to battle this but there was a giant hole in the Treasury of the United States. And that was one of the, you know, very practical reasons why they overturned prohibition is they just couldn't afford to maintain it any longer.
0: So you've got Mabel Walker Willibrand, who was the Assistant Attorney General from 1921 to 1929. And she was basically in charge, ostensibly, of enforcing prohibition, but they never actually gave her the resources. Like she was constantly saying, "I need more money. I need more people."
1: Oh, because the people she was she was uh, trying to go up against were the Al Capones and, and the mobs and, the, you know, people who were making huge amounts of money. The corruption within the uh, political system in the states in that time period uh, and with law enforcement during that time period was immense. Uh, you know, the bribes that were being passed. I was digging around in the Philadelphia police archives and they had a book where, you know, they had, Um, uh, precinct captains right down to beat cops and how much each was going to be getting on a weekly basis, including the number of turkeys they would get Christmas time. Um, You know, again, buying people off. And uh, so that's the other thing that Mabel was fighting against as well, was was not just the resources. Uh, And she had very poor, uh, very limiting uh, laws as well. Um, that, uh, you know, that it started off originally as a police matter, they transferred it into um, um, the uh, taxation and revenue, which is the revenuers that uh, you hear about in the movies. Um, But again, no one trained, uh, no one motivated. I mean, it was pretty hard to be motivated if you were a beat cop making, you know, uh, pennies. Uh, with your own family to feed, and suddenly somebody wants to pad your wallet, it's very difficult to turn away. And so uh, again, just, just, uh, it was a losing battle from the get go. It sounds like she was really set up to fail. Yeah. By appointing a woman, they could show that uh, they were progressive, that they were listening to their constituents, because again, there was that huge movement that was uh, now trying to fight prohibition. um, That was Again, a large part of it was being led by women so that they could appear to be proactive. But again, anyone who works in government knows if you've got no budget, no resources, uh, no staff, uh, you know, it's it's tokenism.
0: I do enjoy looking at your blog because you've got what you call hooch and hellraisers posts. Um, so it looks like the first one you've got here is Belle Livingston.
1: She was a remarkable woman, uh, again, an American who went to uh, Europe and and developed a lot of polish and got a lot of uh, ideas. She was married to many times uh, to uh, Uh, wealthy men, wealthier and wealthier men. Um, uh, But eventually, uh, when she was older, she was actually in her 50s when uh, she ran out of money. And she was in Europe and didn't know what to do. So she decided she'd come home to New York. And she wound up getting uh, hooked up with a a couple of other women speakeasy owners. Uh, And uh, so that her idea was to have a super speakeasy that was going to be for the ultra rich. And uh, again, found an investor, uh, built this incredible club. Um, and again, when you got that kind of profile, you're an easy target. So she was raided and shut down. So she opened another one and she was raided and and uh, shut down. Uh, but because her, her clientele was so affluent and well-to-do, uh, They never, she never really spent any time in jail. There was uh, um, an article, a newspaper article at the time that said that uh, the the people who raided her were as gallant as old-fashioned stagecoach robbers. Um, they made sure that all the ladies had their hats and wraps, and all the gentlemen uh, had a chance to finish their cigars uh, before they were uh, put into the paddy wagons. That um, so, so she was a, she was a character and a real personality. In New York at that time, simply because of the the glitz and the glamour and the uh, the affluence of of what she was trying to pull off with with her speakeasies. And when we're talking about big personalities,
0: um, I would say Texas Guinan also falls under that category.
1: <laughs> I know uh, she she was the Mae West uh, character that uh, is in everyone's uh, imagination brainy and brassy. She was from Texas uh, and they always do everything bigger and better in Texas that um, uh, she knew from the get-go. As soon as they dropped uh, the Volstead Act, they started prohibition. She could see how she would make money. And so uh, her nightclubs were fun fast loud gaudy men and and women went there because of just how outrageous everything was so uh again she was uh um paid if you can imagine 1927 fifty thousand dollars to sing at a speakeasy uh three quarters of a million dollars for one night uh not bad um, and, uh, again, uh, showgirls, uh, coming out the yin yang that, uh, um, her, her big line at the beginning of, of, uh, the evening was, hello suckers, come on in and leave your wallets on the bar. Um, you know, it's a fight a night or your money back. Uh, you may be all the world to your mothers, but you're just a cover charge to me. Celebrities ate that stuff up because she was always in the paper for outrageous behavior. Babe Ruth, Charlie Chaplin, Rudy Valentino—they uh, were all there. Uh, even uh, the Prince of Wales, who later became uh, King Edward the uh, uh, the Eighth, uh, was there. I mean, um, in fact, he's—they got a wonderful photo of him in an apron cooking some eggs uh trying to pretend that he was uh you know just an innocent uh, fry cook so he didn't get uh, arrested that uh and, and so again those were the roaring 20s uh in uh, all of uh, uh texas uh um speakeasies um and then there was helen morgan she was so beautiful and so elegant and, and again an entirely different kind of a personality Um, uh, She was uh, very classy um, that uh, a lot of the uh, musicals that were happening on Broadway uh, wound up uh, going to her speakeasies after the show. Much lower key than Texkin and uh, uh, none of the flashy, brassy stuff Uh, she wound up dying very early of uh, kidney ailments and and liver ailments. But she's the one that basically said what made her so successful, she would reply simply hunger. And again, she she grew up poor and saw an opportunity to make money. For every kind of customer, there was a speakeasy available. (laughs) (laughs) And you mentioned kidney and liver
0: ailments, and I'm just wondering if um, she got poisoned by the alcohol
1: <laughs> I, I don't know they they didn't really uh go into any detail except she died so young i mean she uh was only very early 40s and uh so again didn't have she she never saw what happened at the end of prohibition um that uh, uh she she was also an alcoholic And, you know, they always say there are two kinds of bar owners, the ones that drink and the ones that don't drink at all. And she was a drinker. And so that could have also contributed to her her issues, because, again, it was hard as uh, to get good imported liquor. So you were relying more and more and more on the, the domestically produced liquor and that carried issues
0: and you also mentioned on the blog you've got Cleo Lithgow, Queen of the Bahamas
1: oh i she she's a character uh she she was um in real life Cleo was an american who went to england worked in the uh, front office of uh, a scotch distillery uh a, a a Scottish distillery um, that wound up again making a lot of money uh, during Prohibition by being part of that rum running scene. Um, uh, she also uh, worked sort of uh, with uh, French champagne manufacturers. Uh, But again, not in a sales capacity or a managerial capacity, always in a clerk capacity. And uh, uh, she just had a lot of really good ideas of how to get the job better, done better. And so eventually they sort of gave her the glass cliff and sort of said, okay, fine, you go off to Bahamas and you become the distributor for, for our company there thinking she would fail and we could get rid of this mouthy woman in the office. Um, What happened instead is she became incredibly successful, but, um, uh, but cards were stacked against her right from the get go. Like there was a rule where she had to have her importer's license uh, on an annual basis. Everyone else could mail theirs in. She always had to go down to the courthouse and sit in the, in, wait in line, and it took her days and days uh, to to get it. You know, little things like no one would rent her an office. Um, that, uh, but she had some very interesting alliances, and and we talked a little bit about the men, and um, uh, she she was uh, one that was lucky enough to uh, come across some very important men who made her life easier. Bill McCoy uh, was um, a rum runner. He had a large, uh, several large boats. um, And he preferred to work with Cleo because she was honest. She delivered her product on time. um, And much like he, she never cut her liquor. Uh, so again, if, if you've got one barrel, you can sell for a wad of cash. If you cut it, you know, and dilute it, you can sell two barrels for twice that much. She never did that and neither did he. And he was the reason why there's a phrase talking about the real McCoy, because you could always trust the liquor. So, um, he, he gave her all the breaks, uh, and allowed her to sort of step into the limelight um, uh, because of his success and her success with it. And in my my book, I, I used her as the importer for a woman who is running uh, a small speakeasy in Florida, um, Edith Duffy, who, uh, again, wound up uh, uh, establishing quite a network of uh, speakeasies and rum running uh, along the Florida coast. If you
0: had to sum up um the feel of your books and how that reflects on the period what would you say
1: prohibition was a unique opportunity for women to to become independent whether it was financially or socially or um educationally um but it's that that steely determination and hope that is what I want readers to feel because these women were battling they were riding that wave of social change so successfully um and and there are many real characters who who show up in my books who were the inspiration for my fictionalized characters and the thing that they had in common was that that backbone of steel that they were going to succeed Uh, whether they were doing it for their families or they were doing it because they had had a dream uh, that they were doing it because they were wild women uh, that they're, you know, for whatever the reason that uh, they were taking charge of their own life. And, uh, and I love that energy um, that it's, it's what I was raised with and what I hope I've, I've instilled in my own daughter's.
0: Join us next time on the Infinite Women podcast, and remember, well-behaved women rarely make history.